you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I don't know if you all remember many moons ago, but we celebrated what we call in the business Mother's Day. And on Mother's Day, we looked at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, before we start a new series, whatnot, I thought we would finish this well-known but essential passage of, of Scripture, commonly known as the love chapter. 1 Corinthians 13, page 1021 of your pew Bibles. If you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. The Apostle Paul writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. If we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when, we, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Let's go Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to gather here this morning to open up your word, to worship your holy name. And may we discover this love to open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet we would go in obedience, that the love of the cross would be the love of the church. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. There's a question I get a lot, particularly as a father, that I'm not very good at answering. Maybe you're better at answering these sort of questions than I am. I'm just not the world's best at it. And, and you get asked it a lot if you're a parent. And that is, Daddy, what does that word mean? Maybe you're in conversation and, and you throw out a $10 word because you're from the South and, and you can't count beyond that. But you throw out what you think is a big word and maybe a little kid says, what exactly does that word mean? Maybe it's one of the deacons because insert joke there. But they want to know, what, what does that word mean? And I am terrible with definitions. I, I, I just, if I ever was desperate for a job and worked for a dictionary, they'd fire me within the hour. I couldn't do it. So what I find myself doing is giving descriptions or synonyms. You know, it's sort of like this, or I'll find other words that are similar to it, that maybe then they can piece it all together. It's not that I don't know what the word means, I just struggle to define it. Can I give you a word? Maybe you can help me to define this word. What is love? Could you define love for me? One of the things you'll find in this passage is that Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't pull the church to the side in this letter and decide he's going to define them. Now, Scripture does that elsewhere. But here, Paul isn't concerned with the definition of love, but the description of love in the context of a church that is doing anything but showing love to each other. Let's start with the character of love here. You see it there in verses 4 to 7. This is where we get that love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It isn't boastful or arrogant and doesn't keep all the wrongdoing and all that sort of stuff. And, and typically what we do 
as we come to verses 4 through 7, this is fine to do, is we say here Paul gives us 15, uh, uh, 15 descriptions of love, right? And you go through there, okay, uh, when I love my spouse or my children or my coworkers or my neighbors, right? Is, is my love this? So we, the 15 there, in case you want to see them, patience, kindness, um, it, it isn't envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable. It isn't resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Right? We would pick those 15 from right here from the text. We didn't make it up. And we, we would say, this is what love looks like. And I think that's true. But I actually think Paul is doing something more simple than that. Because I don't know about you. I'm not going to memorize a list of 15 things. Maybe you can do that, and, and, and that's great. But I'm not going to remember a list of 15 things. But I can remember two things. Can I tell you how Paul describes love here in just two simple ways? First of all, he says, love is patience. What it says there, isn't it? Is that what your text says? What my text says? That's the thesis. Love is patient. And what you'll find is in the descriptions that follow are come out of that description of love. Love is patient. You see, a love that lasts must be a patient love. Can I tell you why? Because the object of your love, after all, love requires an object, right? I love pizza, which is why I have a weight problem. I love my family. I love uh, the English Premier League, right? And I don't care what you Kentucky fans think. I love, right? Whatever it is we love, there's an object. There's something we need to discover that we forget all the time. The object of your love, your spouse, your children, your family, your outlaws, I'm kidding, your, your, your extended family, your church family, your coworkers and neighbors, the object of your love are broken people. They are broken people. So regardless of who it is we may claim to love, they are fallen, broken sinners who if you love them, you will be patient with them. See, your marriage is not between someone who's righteous, me, and someone who's unrighteous, them, and I've got to fix them, right? That's typically the way we respond to, to our Now, we wouldn't say it out loud, but a lot of our conflicts are, 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 are over things like, why can't you see things the way I see things? Why can't you do things the way I like for them to be done? Right? We forget that we are loving someone who is a sinner. In fact, marriage is the union of two sinners. They need your patience as much as uh, you need their patience. Parents, you know this, your children are little rascals who are broken and need Jesus. You already knew that. If not, everyone else here in the church knows that. And you just need to be caught up right, to the truth. Right? Every object of your love is broken. But when love serves with a patient selflessness, then it is true love. Selfless love is a patient love. But you need to know it isn't just the object of our love is broken. The subject of love is broken. The person who is loving is broken. This is one of the things that I think we've lost in the nuclear family today primarily, though not exclusively, because of modern technology. So let me sound like a lug guy as I, as I adjust my glasses. When I was growing up, again, I know that makes me sound old, but I'm beyond the point of caring, um, is, is I went to school. You know what we had at school? Punks. We had bullies. We had bad people who were a pain in the neck. 
And the problem is I couldn't escape them because we grew up together and you couldn't go to the other end of the school because they had the same classes as you because we all had the same classes together, small school. And you just had to deal with it. The school bus was miserable. Lunchtime was miserable. Third hour was miserable. But then something strange happened. We came home. We got off the school bus, we ran up the hill, went inside. I fixed me two frozen pizzas because I was a growing boy. I watched Saved by the Bell and the Batman animated series. I mean, life was good. And when you're going through puberty and you go from Johnny Cash to Dolly Parton, it, it, it's easy to get picked on when you're at school. When your feet aren't the right length for the rest of your body. When you're, you're built through adolescence like Gumby, right? You've got these slinky arms and legs and, and no torso. Right? And, and, and you're awkward and you talk awkward and you're starting to think awkward because you are awkward. And all of that is on you at school. When you're out in public, when you're with other people, they see you as awkward. They see you as strange. They see you as weird. They see you as belonging to that other people group, right? Then you come home. You know who doesn't care about any of that? Mom and dad. Brother and sister. Doesn't mean they don't pick on you. It doesn't mean that there isn't conflict. What it means is none of this stuff matters. Why? Because you're loved. Because you're loved. You see, though I am broken, what I need is a patient love of parents and family and, and a support system that says, we don't care if you look like Gumby. We don't care if you can't find where your voice is going to end up. We don't care about any of that sort of stuff. What we care about is you. And this is the problem with when modern technology comes into the home, all the nonsense of the public world, school, work, play, uh, pleasure, whatever, is now being brought into the home through social media, through text message, through everything else. What's worse, we're inviting the entire world through various means, and it, we can fit it right there in our pockets. This is going to add to anxiety and everything else because now we want to be loved by them and we forget that we are loved within our own home. After all, what do you think the phrase blood is thicker than water really means? You and I all have that crazy uncle. We all have that cringeworthy cousin. And there's always that black sheep sibling, right? Now, you may need to write this down. There's a good chance some of y'all are that black sheep sibling or crazy uncle, okay? <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this, but I just told you. Yet we deal patiently with them, don't we? Because we love them. And they return by dealing patiently with us. Because what we need is patient love. Love is patient. It isn't envious. I, I refuse to, to demand what I want and demand what I don't have. Envy rushes to take. It consume, it's consumed by hate and discontentments. It's not a patient love. Love is patient. It isn't boastful. Love doesn't need to prove its, itself to anyone. Have you ever met these people who they spend their lives trying to impress everyone else? It's annoying, isn't it? It's annoying. Can you imagine? My wife and I, we just celebrated our 15th year anniversary. Can you imagine if I'm still trying to impress her? Because let me tell you something about my wife. She ain't impressed anymore. <laughs> because she sees me. She knows me. She ain't impressed. There ain't nothing there. I always joke, she didn't marry me for my money. She didn't marry my good looks. She didn't marry me for my family. Didn't marry me for my education. Didn't marry me for, for my career track, right? I don't know why she married me, but I know why she didn't marry me, right? She, love doesn't need to be boastful because love isn't about promoting the self. It's about promoting the other. 
Therefore, love is patient. Love isn't rude. It doesn't insist on getting its way. It doesn't irritate or resent. It doesn't rejoice when other people fail or struggle or, or get their just resorts, uh, desserts. Patient, lo- patient love chooses patience over anger and resentment and bitterness. It chooses grace over envy, mercy over wrath, gentleness over such bitterness. Maybe you want revenge here. I beg you to choose patient love. Maybe you are exhausted and want a change in your life. I I beg of you to choose a patient love. Maybe you're ready to quit, throw in the towel, move on, ready to surrender. I beg of you, again, to choose patient love. After all, isn't this what Christ has done for us? And don't sit here and think, yeah, I showed up early to the grace train. No, there is Christ hanging from the cross while we were yet sinners. Isn't that Paul's point in Romans 5? Christ didn't die and we were, okay, I'm waiting here, Jesus, you go ahead and save me because I'm ready to receive it. No, rather, Christ offers us love. He extends to us grace. He bleeds and dies while we are rebels. You see, if God's love isn't a patient love, you and I wouldn't be here today. It cannot be sustained without a patient love. But it isn't just that love is patient, but love is kind. Is that, is that what your text says? Love is kind. Have you ever noticed that the greatest hurt you will ever feel in, feel in this world was caused by someone you love? You ever notice that? No one can hurt you more than the people who you love the most. The inverse is true. You will not hurt anyone more in this life than the people you claim to love. It's strange, isn't it? If love is kind, why do we so easily forget it? Remember those two realities we saw earlier. The object of our love is broken. The subject of love is broken. The remedy is a patient, kind love. Didn't we just just read, Mark had us read from, from Proverbs where it's pretty common sense. Wisdom knows when to keep its mouth shut, right? Amen. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's getting hot in here now, right? You know? Now think about that. We say, well, that's obvious. Try that the next time you want to pick a fight with someone. Try that the next time you want to raise your voice and throw things across the hallway at your children. Remember that when you pound the table at work because no one's hearing you. Remember that. Oh, it seems obvious now. Because wisdom is kind. Love is kind. But in the heat of the moment, when our pride is severed, when we're not getting things our way, boy, we so easily forget that love is kind. If patient love is about holding back and not assuming the worst, waiting with endurance, kind love is primarily about giving without demanding back. After all, kindness is part of Christian character. We never talk about this, do we? In in Colossians, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, note the connection to the gospel, holy and beloved, you are to be holy and you are to be, you are the loved ones, right? Beloved, love, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. We read that and we think, yeah, that's what a Christian looks like without really thinking about what the terms actually mean. You and I are called to be kind. Same thing Galatians 5. Tell me if you've ever heard of this. Fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Skip that. Goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Well, we get this, right? If you're a Christian, you're called to kindness. Kindness, after all, describes integrity, virtue, tolerance, goodness, pleasant behavior, usefulness, benevolence. Kind love gives without thought of reward. 
That is, it's not prone to envy. Isn't that what your text says? It's not prone to boastfulness. It's not prone to arrogance. It's not prone to rudeness, personal insistence, irritability, resentfulness, wrongdoing. You could take all those negative traits and you could say they are the opposite of patience and kindness. If you're kind, you're not a pain in the neck. Is that too simple for us to grasp? If you are loving, you're not arrogant. Is that so hard to understand? Yet there we are, claiming I love this person with all my heart and all my being, yet I will destroy their character. I will, I will undo their reputation. I will scream and I will shout and I will, I will pound my fist if I have to. Love is kind. Rather, such a love that is kind rejoices with others. Isn't that what your text says? It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Does that describe you? Take something like jealousy. Jealousy is the refusal to rejoice with other people. It feeds and is fed by bitterness and envy, malice, hurt, all that sort of stuff. But at its core, it refuses to rejoice with others. Neighbor Bob probably has a nicer car than you. Why can't you, for once, be happy for neighbor Bob? Sister Susie has a better job than you and got that promotion. Why can't you, just for once, be happy for your sister? Jealousy doesn't swim in kindness. There are always going to be people wealthier than you, always going to be people who look like better parents than you, Always going to be people who look better than you, more successful than you, taller than you, raised in a better home than you, pray better than you. Who cares? You must choose today to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. You don't celebrate people when they are down. You don't get bitter when they are up. Love is kindness. Jealousy is the poison we drink hoping the other person will die. And then we are surprised to find it to be corrosive. That's not love. Jealousy, bitterness, arrogance, it turns us into nasty people. We go online and shame those who have been embarrassed, wronged, or in sin. We brag to our buddies to pump ourselves up. We refuse to listen to others, insist on our own way, compromise our own character. That's not love. Love is patient. How simple is that? Love is kind. How simple is that? How often we forget. Kind love is gracious to others. It gives without demanding return. It heals what has been harmed, forgives every wrong. It blesses. This is love. And the reason this is love is because kind love is gospel love. It's rooted in the gospel. One of the things I found striking is, is if you do a word study of the word kind or kindness in the New Testament, you're going to notice something. We looked at a few passages that speak to Christians who are called to be kind, the fruits of the Spirit and all that sort of stuff. But typically, when the New Testament talks about kindness, it's not in the context of how a Christian should act, but is in the context of how God in Christ has acted towards you in the cross. Can I give you just, just three examples here? I'm going to anyways. The first one is in Romans 2. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Where have I heard that God's love is kind and patience? 
We should look that up some, sometime. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. This was Paul building a case that we are broken, we are shameful, and we are guilty. He's building that case so that as, as, he, as he confronts us with who we really are, he can show us with who Christ is. And what he shows us is God's forbearance, God's patience to you is his kindness, which is the root of his love. That's the gospel. How else do you describe the cross? Or consider Ephesians 2. You ought to be familiar with this, right? This is after he says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead. You you are sons of wrath. He says, but God, rich in mercy, because of his great love in which he loved us. Clearly, we see the connection with love there. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him to heavenly places of Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show to us the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not anything you've done. It's the gift of God. Isn't it clear? God's kindness is connected to God's grace. Titus chapter 3. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works we've done in any righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to his hope of eternal life. You see it there. It was God's loving kindness. The words are literally next to you in your English Bibles. It is God's loving kindness that sent his son that while you and I were punks, you and I were guilty, you and I were shameful, he died for us. Knowing, he, knowing we may never repent, knowing that things may never change, there is Christ upon the cross. Now, if that's not kindness, I, I just don't know what the word means anymore. And here we are. I am loved by Jesus, but don't you dare get my order wrong. I am loved by Jesus, but, 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 but your habits annoy me. I'm loved by Jesus. But I can't put up with it anymore. I am loved by Jesus. What comes out is anything but. Two things Paul t- describes love with. It is patient. It is kind. One of Abraham Lincoln's earliest political enemies was a man by the name of Edwin, uh, Edwin Stanton. He called Lincoln a low, cunning clown and the original gorilla. This is, was on his Twitter page back in the 19th century. Quote, it was ridiculous for people to go to Africa to see a gorilla, he would say, when they could easily find one in Springfield, Illinois. Lincoln never responded, but when, as president, he needed a secretary of war, he called up his opponent, Edwin Stanton. A friend asked Lincoln, why would you choose your political enemy for this important position, especially since war was imminent? He said, quote, because Stanton is the best man for the job. As many of you all know, Lincoln died in 1865. If not, he probably went to my school. But one of the people there at his bedside was Edwin Stanton. The first words uttered after the last breath the president took was from Stanton. He said, quote, he belongs to the ages. Later, as the same president's body lay in state, 
Stanton investigated the coffin and said through his tears, there lies the greatest ruler of men the world has ever known. Stanton was won over simply by the patient and kind love of Lincoln. But we see here in the text, and we must move quickly, not just the description of love, but the permanence of love. The real beauty of love is our natural belief that it is permanent. I mean, there's very few people, I suspect, that go to a wedding, see that young couple up there and think, this is going to be the best three years of their life. I mean, my my father-in-law has, and I'm going to blame him on this, but this this is a joke he and I came up together, but I'm going to blame him, throw him under the bus. Uh, He likes it when I introduce my wife as, as, um, uh, as my first wife, right? You don't find that y'all don't find that funny. I think it's hilarious. But but, but you know, again, my father-in-law, blame him. And he'll say, "She's been a pretty good first wife for you, ain't she?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your daughter. Um, but uh, um, love is permanent. After all, isn't that what your text says? Look at it. There, verse eight. Is that what your Bible says? Love never ends. Love never fails. Same meaning, isn't it? Again, I'm not very good with definitions, but they sound like synonyms doesn't end. But here's the real problem where, where you are right here in this text. You have a hard time believing it. Chances are you're here this morning and you're being pulled between what the Scripture says and you believe every word of Scripture and yet you're looking at your own life and the mess of your past and the mess of your brokenness and the mess of your relationship you're thinking it didn't look like it. How is it that love never fails and yet my entire life is one example after another of failed love? When people said they loved me but they didn't show any love. When I claim to love others and yet I have failed them constantly. How is it that I can reconcile these two realities? One is the divine word of God. The other is my experience. Where was this permanent love when dad left us? Where was this permanent love when my spouse cheated on me? Where was this permanent love when my boyfriend used me? Where was this permanent love when I felt alone and forgotten and abused? This is why gospel love must define our lives. Not the cheap off-brand of our desires or what we are sold by the world. When gospel love is believed and gospel love is practiced, what we discover is that love never fails. Love never ends. In fact, that's really what Paul's doing throughout the rest of this chapter. You can break it down two parts. We won't spend forever. I think we've done it in the past before. But his theme is that God's or or that love is never ending. Now, it seems like he's getting distracted here. You need to remember that that Paul is writing this love chapter in the midst of conflict between Christians. I am so glad Christians don't argue and and, and do nasty things to each other now. Boy, let me tell you, because there are no churches established today because they were angry about what happened at the other church. I am so glad I made up these fake scenarios, aren't you? And what does Paul do Is, is you have this church fighting, Christians fighting over what is temporary rather than what is eternal. They've exchanged eternal love for temporary advantages. And so you've got people bragging. Well, I've got this spiritual gift. I'm a better Christian than you. Have you seen how God uses me? Aren't I a wonderful person? And so you're comparing, you're contrasting. I'm better, you're worse, I'm this, you're that. 
That is a recipe for division. It's a recipe for disaster. It feeds our bitterness and envy and malice. And so Paul comes and says here, what you have forgotten isn't just you have a bad theology, but you have a, you have a, 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 a false understanding of what love is. Love is patient. There's no patience here. Love is kind. There's any kindness here. And so he illustrates the permanence of love by, by saying, first of all, everything will fade, but, but except love. This is what he says here. Prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease or languages will cease. Knowledge will pass away. However, we may interpret those ideas and, and gifts. What you need to see is the day will come when these things will be unnecessary, but there will still be love. Why then would you trade the, the eternal for something that is temporary? He does the same thing in 11 and 12. He, he gives this illustration. This temporal love is incomplete. After all, they're acting like children. All the factions and divisions and cliques are the result of failing to understand the enduring nature of love. And he also says in verse 12 that the temporal, the temporal is partial. After all, we look in the mirror, but it's very, very partial. Their mirrors aren't the same as, as ours is today. So you can't see everything there in the mirror. But the day will come and we will see face to face he who is risen. So, so, so the temporary thing that we put so much emphasis on is, is partial. It isn't even the full picture. But if we have love, more particularly Christ's love, there we see what is eternal. But it's got to be Christ's love. Not the off-brand that we so often buy into. Not our desires that, that control us. The Corinthians are treating the eternal with the temporary. And we do the same thing. We'll trade in the eternal love of Christ for something that is partial and temporary. We'll care more about our rights and our needs over the, the, the needs of others. You see, love never ends because it was never about us to begin with. It isn't about what we receive, but about what we can give. This sort of love feeds thanksgiving. It feeds humility and meekness and joy. Wouldn't you love to have a marriage that is driven by those ideas rather than what they often are? Would you rather have a home life, a church life, a work life driven by, by thanksgiving and humility? True love is concerned with giving, not receiving. Thus, when mutual love is shared, both receive without demanding it. And both are quick to give rather than demanding anything in return. Wouldn't it be nice to receive love without demanding it? Because your eyes isn't on your glory and praise, but on the needs of the person you claim to love. That's what a kind love looks like. It's what a patient love looks like. It's what a permanent love looks like. And this is why he can claim with great boldness there in verse 13, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Let me tell you, one thing you see in this text is that love crumbles for two reasons. Two reasons. Love in your life will crumble. Or you will fail to love in this way, in a gospel way, for two reasons. It's pretty straightforward. In fact, I stole this from the seven letters to the church because I know you've already forgotten all that stuff. So here it is. I'm going to steal it right from those, those, those letters. Because what Paul or Jesus is talking about, particularly with the Ephesian church, two things is why love will crumble. First of all, we, 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 refuse, we, we fail to remember. We fail to remember. We forget what love is. We choose the counterfeit. We allow our desires, our expectations, our demands to cloud selfless, serving love. I mean, how many of us, when we are screaming at the top of our lungs at our spouse, suddenly forget the vows we made at our wedding? If we remembered those vows, if we remembered the cross, 
How high would our voice be screaming at that point? We are withholding affection, withholding intimacy, always making demands, always choosing bitterness and malice. Have we not forgotten the cross? Is it not the cross that, 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 that should be right in front of us and says, this is love. This is what love looks like. Don't forget it. It's why the, the Old Testament Jews, they are, they are told to build pillars and stones and monuments so that they don't forget that God is providentially taking care of them. God is love. So that when future generations come, they'll say, Daddy, why is that there? And he say, let me tell you a story about God's loving care for us. It is patient and it is kind. We don't deserve it. It was given to us. So, too, there are wedding vows and, and our love for each other should be a reminder as we look to the cross, this is how I love myself spouse. This is how I love my parents. This is how I love my kids. This is how I love other church members. This is how I love leadership. This is how I love my boss. This is how I love my neighbors. This is how I love the world like that. Because God's love for me was patient and kind, and I dare not forget it. Not only should we remember, but we should repent. Again, I'm taking it straight from particularly the, the church to, to the Ephesians, but it, it's, I think it's right here in the text as well. People do not fall out of love. People fall out of repentance. If your marriage right now is crumbling, the reason isn't because God's love isn't sufficient for you. It's because your refusal to repent is destroying you. People don't fall out of love. Churches don't split because of love. Communities don't fight against each other because of love. People don't fall out of love. They fall out of repentance. Love never fails. People do. Sin destroys. It corrodes. It tears down. And if you don't believe me, turn on your TV. Don't tell me you're a person of love with, armed with brick and a Molotov cocktail. Don't tell me you're, you're a person of love because your flag's bigger than your neighbor's, yet you're, you're going to destroy them online. Don't tell me it's love. Love doesn't fail. People do. So in the end, of course, we cannot grasp any of this apart from the gospel. Look at him whose love overcomes death, depravity, and the devil. So maybe you're here and you've never witnessed permanent love. Maybe your parents were divorced when you were young. Maybe you grew up in a home where fighting was the normal and rage was common. Maybe you've bounced from church to church, home to home, relationship to relationship, job to job, all in a vain search for love. Is it love that we are pursuing? Is it love that we've ever really witnessed? Love perseveres simply because God's love is an eternal love which stems from an eternal God. Love never fails. And I think the world would be better if we had more of it, don't you? I think our churches would be a lot better if we had more of it. Our homes would be better if we had a cross-shaped love. A number of years ago, a woman wrote a book telling her story out of addiction. And I'd like to read it straight from her, if you don't mind. I was curled up in a fetal position on a filthy carpet in a cluttered apartment. I'm in horrible withdrawal from a drug addiction. I have a little piece of paper 
dilapidated because I've been folding it and unfolding it, but I could still make out the phone number on it. I am in a state of bald terror. My husband is out trying to get a hold of some of the drugs that we needed. But right behind me, sleeping in the bedroom, was my baby boy. I wasn't going to get the Mother of the Year award. In fact, at the age of 29, I was failing at a lot of things. So I decided to get clean. I was soon going to lose the most precious thing I'd ever had in my life, that baby boy. I was so desperate at that moment that I wanted to make use of that phone number. It was something my mother has sent me. She said, quote, this is a Christian counselor. Maybe sometime you can call this person. It was two in the morning, but I punched in the numbers. Heard a man say hello, and I said, hi, I got your number from my mother. I, 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 I was wondering if maybe you could talk to me. He said, yes, yes, of course. What's, what's going on? I told him I was scared and that my marriage had gotten pretty bad. Before long, I started telling him other truths, like I might have a drug problem. And this man just sat with me and listened and had such kindness and gentleness. Tell me more, he would say. Oh, that must hurt very much. He stayed up with me the whole night, just being there until the sun rose. By then, I was feeling calm. The raw panic had passed, and I was feeling okay. I was very grateful for him, and so I said, I really appreciate you and what you've done for me tonight. How long have you been a Christian counselor? And at that point, there was a long pause. Auburn, please don't hang up, but I'm afraid to tell you this. You've got the wrong number. I'm not a therapist, but I very much enjoyed talking to you. I didn't hang up on him. I never got his name. I never spoke to him again. But the next day, I felt like I was shining. I discovered that there was this completely random love in the universe, that it could be unconditional, and that some of it was for me. That is gospel love. Seen and experienced in the voice of a stranger on a phone. And you can't get there apart from the cross. So, so, so maybe you're here and you've been wounded by love. I, I beg of you to come today to the cross. Maybe you're here and you have wounded with love. I beg of you to come to the cross. I beg of you. We are all in this text. Maybe you're here and you need to remember Maybe you hear and you need to repent. I beg of you to come to the cross. Let's pray.